Dear glorious Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for this beautiful Sabbath day. Lord, what a tremendous gift it is, a gift of rest, a gift of communion with you. And Lord, we come before you today humbly in worship and in prayer. And we just ask you to bless us, to keep us safe, to draw us unto your truths. As we open your Bible today, we ask you to please bless this gathering, bless this study. Help us to understand more about your church, the history of your church, and the future path of your church. Lord, please be with us. Keep us strong. We ask this all in your son Jesus' name. Amen. The four horsemen. Revelation's four horsemen. How many have heard this? Any mention of this? The four horsemen. Amen. Have you ever wondered why, with one God, one Bible, one Jesus, why there's so many different denominations? A good question, isn't it? Why so many different denominations? How did we go from one unified Christian church to thousands of different churches following different doctrines? It's a good question. In fact, the average person is bewildered by this confusing array of churches. Like, what's going on? Don't really understand. One God, one Bible, one Jesus. But thousands of different churches? A bigger question, though, about all these churches, which one is right? Right? I mean, that's the question. People don't want to, they don't want to ask that question. But it's a valid question. Here's a little facts about Christianity. Anybody know how many Christians are on the world today? Self-proclaimed Christians? 2.2 billion self-proclaimed Christians in the world today. Anybody have an idea of how many separate denominations of Christian churches? 40,000. How about Protestant churches in America? 300,000 Protestant churches in America. That's a lot, isn't it? Have you ever wondered, how can I find truth? Well, if you're here, especially if you came to these meetings, you're searching for truth, amen? You didn't come to see me, because first night, remember, we, we established the whole thing. You didn't even know who I was. You were looking for truth. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. You don't go to church to find truth. You say, oh, wait a minute, Dan. But remember what I told you on night one? I said, check everything I tell you with the Bible, amen? It's the same principle to follow when you're looking for truth. You go to the Bible to find out what truth is. Then find a church that is teaching with the Bible. I kind of tricked you into that statement about you don't go to church to find truth, right? You find truth here. And then you find the church that's going to teach from this. If you had to search the teachings of every church, you'd be looking through thousands of denominations. The Bible's the Bible, the Word of God. That would take a lifetime to search all those denominations. And in the end, you would still be as confused as you are when you started. So don't go to church to discover what truth is. Go to the Bible and then look for a church that's teaching from the Bible. Amen? That's why our theme is, if it's in the Bible, I believe it. If it disagrees with the Bible, it's not for me. That's why we have sought all of our answers 
in this series from the Bible. Everything I've talked about, I've backed up with the Bible. Amen? Bible prophecy clearly reveals why there are so many denominations. We're going to learn why. How did we end up in this place? God has particularly revealed the answer to this question in the book of Revelation. In fact, when we turn to Revelation chapter 6, we're going to see there's a marvelous vision of these four horsemen galloping across the sky. And in this vision of the four horsemen, God has revealed the history of the Christian church, history of Christianity, more clearly than any other place in the Bible. He's revealed the history of Christianity from the first centuries in the days of Christ down to the 21st century where we're living right now today. He's revealed how Christianity would begin as one cohesive movement, one body, and then it would break up into these various denominations. He explains why those denominations would emerge. My friends, this is one of the most fascinating one of the most exciting prophecies in the Bible. As I said, it's found in Revelation chapter 6. We're going to see four successive ages in the history of the church. Revelation's four horsemen represent those four successive ages in the history of the church. And the author of that prophecy, the one that opens the seals of that prophecy, is Jesus Christ himself. Amen? Turn to Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. Page 1178. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder. Now when I saw the Lamb, who's the Lamb? The Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Remember, we've talked about that. It's Jesus. Jesus is the Lamb of Revelation. Who is the book of Revelation about? Jesus Christ, remember? It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It reveals who Jesus Christ is. And in chapter 6, Revelation chapter 6, Jesus gives us the history of Christianity. He continues, he says, And I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. So John's going to be revealed something. Come and see. Continues in verse 2, And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. So in this vision, in this prophecy, we're going to see four horses that gallop across the sky, one after another, successively. So when Jesus opens the seals, he's going to show the history of the church in phases. And the first period that we're shown is represented by this white horse. In the Bible, white is a symbol of purity. And the one riding that horse, wearing a crown, is Jesus. Amen? And he goes out conquering and to conquer. So the first phase of the Christian church is pictured as a rider on a white horse, triumphing, winning, conquering all the forces of evil. It is represented as being pure. The white horse represents a powerful, pure faith. In the New Testament, God's truth triumphs. Amen? That's what we're seeing here in this white horse. 
Why would this phase of the church be referred to as pure? Why would this phase? Because at this point in time, the church has just emerged from Christ's personal ministry. Jesus in person. And Christ himself was with the leaders. He trained them, raised them up, and they followed his instructions implicitly. In God's New Testament, God's truth triumphs at this time. Amen? It triumphs at all times. But we're going to see the church. This is its pure state. Now, there's a whole other lesson here that I'd love to talk about at another time. If we're going to model God's church, this is the church we should model. Amen? This is the church right after Jesus. These men knew what Jesus was asking and expecting and building. So from A.D. 31, after the death of Christ, to A.D. 100, the disciples preached the truth of God's word powerfully. In fact, one Roman writer wrote, you Christians are everywhere. You're in our armies. You're in our navies. You're in the marketplace and the shops. You're in our senate and the universities. You are everywhere. That's powerful. Think about that. Now remember, this is a time when it's still imperial Rome, right? Christianity is exploding. The New Testament church grows rapidly. It spreads across the known world quickly. Nothing could stop the progress of Christianity in the first century. Like a white horse victorious, like a white horse conquering, the Christian church gallops across the sky. The power of the gospel cannot be stopped. Kings and rulers and entire nations become Christian. Think about that power, that transformation. You see, when men and women do not compromise truth in their own life, the church has power. You see, God cannot sanctify error. The powerful New Testament church, armed with the truth of God and filled with the Holy Spirit, make an amazing impact on the Roman world. In fact, you see it in those writers. They see what's on the horizon. You Christians are everywhere. Now, he wasn't, I don't think he, that was a compliment. <laughs> I think that was a harbinger. They're saying, what's going on here? There's a wave overtaking the empire. My friends, it's a powerful statement. Think about it. An imperial, pagan country transformed by the power of God's truth. Think about the implications of that and the power that it had. It had to come from God. The small group of men couldn't raise that up on their own against that power. The source has to be God. Then the scene changes. The second seal is open. We see a red horse. A red horse gallops across the sky. Back to Revelation chapter 6. This time, verse 4. Revelation chapter 6, verse 4. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. And that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. So the enemy, Satan, takes note of this massively, quickly growing church, this movement. He said, I can't have this. 
This is a problem. It's a problem for his goals. Satan realizes, I can't stop the church. It's triumphing everywhere. i got to do something. So what does he do? He begins a fierce era of bloody persecution. He influences political leaders to viciously persecute Christians. Try to force them to deny their faith. Bleed them out of the church. You see, the red horse represents a bloody faith. Christians were thrown to the lions. They were brutally killed, tortured, persecuted. Many for just, just for entertainment. Entertainment. Just as the white horse represented a powerful, pure faith, this red horse represents a blood-stained faith. So we see from A.D. 100 to A.D. 313, Christians are persecuted terribly in this blood-stained faith period. So you got the white horse, pure faith. you got the red horse's blood-stained faith. That white horse represented Christ triumphant. The red horse symbolizes a church persecuted. God's church under attack. But, what happens? The church continues to grow. Continues to grow. Satan persecutes it, but he can't stop it. In fact, one early church writer wrote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the gospel. The more you persecute us, the more we grow. Satan says, I can't persecute you guys out of existence. You're still growing. In fact, you're feeding on martyrdom. I got to change strategy. I got to move from this persecution thing to something else. Now, a third horse gallops across the sky. This one is the black horse. So we see a black horse period. Turn to Revelation chapter 6, this time verse 5. Revelation chapter 6, verse 5. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. So now Satan's changing strategy. He's going to introduce compromise. He's going to bring in pagan practices. 200 years of persecution attacks the church, and it doesn't. Stop the church from growing. So Satan now has a new strategy. He introduces compromise. Compromise. My friend, Satan is always refining his technique of attack. He's always refining his deceptions. His master strategy now brings pagan practices into the church. What's happened is the church has grown up out of a pure faith. So they can identify pagan practices. What Satan's going to do is now he's going to start mixing that into the church. It's going to start to seep into the church. Instead of an overt external attack, Satan joins the Christian church. We've heard the strategy before, right? If you can't beat them, join them. This one is to still try to beat them. Join them in order to beat them. Infiltration. 
You say, now wait a minute, Dan. Are you suggesting that Satan, the enemy of God, has joined the Christian church? And I'm saying absolutely. And you know why? Because Christians have invited him in. The white horse represented that purity. The black horse represents compromise. A compromise, an error-filled time coming into the church. Compromised faith. You see, this black horse period represents the period from AD 313 to 538. The Apostle Paul was so concerned about compromises in his day, he wrote to us about it. Turn to Acts chapter 20. Page 1075. Acts chapter 20, verse 29. Acts chapter 20, verse 29. Paul says, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. You see, Paul's warning the flock. He says, after the shepherds are gone, attack is going to come. Inside. He says, wolves are going to attack the church from without during the red horse period, but now the attack is going to come from inside. Remember, they were being persecuted from outside. Now, this period, they're going to be infiltrated. Compromise is going to rise up from within the church. The teachings of men would be substituted for the teachings of God. In this period, religious leaders arise teaching perverse and crooked things. And by compromise, the church becomes really large. It grows really fast. Now it starts getting political power. It becomes a power. Human tradition begins to replace the truths of God. Turn to Daniel chapter 8. Page 866. Daniel chapter 8, verse 12. Page 866. Because of transgression... An army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. And he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Where would truth be cast down? To the ground. You see, in the black horse period, during the 4th and 5th centuries, truth, God's truth is going to be cast aside. It's going to be cast to the ground. Church history reveals that this prophecy is true. There's a book called The Development of Christian Doctrine. It was written by a famed Christian historian named John Henry Newton. And he says this, We are told by Eusebius that Constantine, in order to recommend the new religion to the heathen, transferred into it the outward ornaments to which they had been accustomed in their own. And what did Constantine do? Remember, he's a pagan Roman emperor. What was he trying to do? What was his goal? His goal was to keep his empire together, remember? It was crumbling. It was being attacked. And he's trying to figure out, how can I keep my empire together? 
So what does he do? He recommends Christianity to the heathens because he needed their support to strengthen his empire against the invading barbarian tribes. How's he going to do that? How's he going to get them to join in? He transfers into it the outward ornaments to which they had been accustomed in their own. He brings in practices from their pagan ceremonies, their pagan religion. The Bible gives way to superstitious traditions. Priests take up the authority of Jesus. So Constantine intermingles paganism and Christianity for convenience. Wants to keep power. He was more worried about worldly position and power than following God. Salvation through Christ was replaced by the requirements of the church. My friends, this is a time when man took the place of God. Tradition replaced plain Bible truth. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, page 1125. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. The Apostle Paul is saying that the only way you can be saved is by a gift of God, grace. And showing faith in that God. You can do nothing of your own power to get saved. That's what the Apostle Paul is telling us. It's a gift from God. And during this time of compromise... Simple faith now gets replaced by pagan practices like lighting candles, bowing down before images, worshiping saints. My friends, none of those are in the Bible. The church presumes to change God's laws, including the acceptance of idol worship and also the neglect of the Sabbath. During this age of compromise, the pagans' day of the sun replaces the Bible's Sabbath. We've talked about this in several nights. Many Christian leaders promote Sunday to make Christianity more acceptable to pagans. They were already worshiping the sun. They were already observing this day. This would be an easy transition for them. Give them their day of worship. Whatever it takes, just join. Oh, by the way, and keep paying your taxes. Rome was keen on taxes. In fact, Rome was okay with you being a Christian as long as you weren't whipping up mobs and you were paying your taxes. They were worshiping on the first day of the week, Sunday, the venerable day of the sun. Christian history reveals this. You can go to any library. You can Google it. Look up the facts. This is the history. Roman church history themselves will admit to it. History of the Eastern Church, page 184. The retention of the old pagan name of Dies Solis for Sunday is in a great measure owing to the union of pagan and Christian sentiment with which the first day of the week was recommended by Constantine to his subjects, pagan and Christian alike, as the venerable day of the sun. 
Satan's master strategy was to influence powerful church leaders to unite with powerful state leaders during this black horse period. A church and state union. Church and state comes together. Religious power, secular power joins. And in that union, they compromise. The pagan Roman Emperor Constantine unites with the Roman church in an attempt to keep his empire together. And he uses Sunday as that vehicle for unity. Page 174, Doctrinal Catechism. Third edition by Reverend Stephen Keenan. He's a Catholic author of the catechism. And he writes this in a question and answer format. Question. Have you any other way of proving that the church has power to institute festivals or precepts? How does the church get to do this is what the question is. Does the church have that kind of power? Answer, had she not such power, she could not have done that in which all modern religionists agree with her. He's actually using the fact that everybody else is following the church. See, if you say we don't have the power, why are you following us? Pretty good logic, isn't it? He's using that as a proof. You guys are going along. Clearly, we must have power. Continues. She could not have substituted the observance of Sunday, the first day of the week, for the observance of Saturday, the seventh day. A change for which there is no scriptural authority. This is a Catholic author says that nowhere in the Bible is there a switch of the Sabbath. My friends, he's telling us that these other churches following them in this change actually illustrates and supports their power to do so. He says, if we didn't have the power, why are you following us? Why are you going on Sunday? Reverend Keenan makes this issue very plain. In the early centuries where the church and the state unite, Sabbath was changed by the church to Sunday. Which means what? It means the church attempted to change God's law. It attempted to change the Ten Commandments in a mixture of Christianity with paganism. Compromise. Compromise. You see, idol worship and Sunday worship were much more acceptable at that time to pagans. And in this black horse period, the church grows large and powerful and rich. But in so doing, it loses its true power. What was the source of its true power in the white horse period? God. Amen? Jesus. As compromise grows, their popularity grows. And the black horse period shows a church that grows exponentially, but also abandons God's word just as quickly. As it continues to grow, it leaves God's truth faster and faster. Because now it wants to be popular. It wants to be powerful. The fourth seal. The pale horse. The fourth seal opens. Back to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6 verse 8. So I looked and behold a pale horse and the name of him who sat on it was death and Hades followed with him. 
Now, I'm sure many of you have heard this text. It's even been popularized in many Hollywood movies. My friends, that's not because they're interested in the Bible. It's because they love dark, dreadful things. To them, this was just catchy. Continues. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. This is the period that we often call or refer to as the Dark Ages. From A.D. 538 onward, the church grows large. It builds great cathedrals. But during this time, there's a persecution of true Bible-believing Christians. Church and state continues to unite, get stronger and stronger. But the church is spiritually dead. Here's an amazing statement. Church history. Christianity became an established religion in the Roman Empire and took the place of paganism. Christianity as it existed in the Dark Ages might be termed baptized paganism. Baptized paganism. So the pale horse period is a dead faith period. That's from A.D. 538 to A.D. 1798. So we have the white horse period, pure faith. Then the red horse comes galloping across the sky. That's a bloodstained faith. Then we saw the black horse. That's a compromised faith. And then we have the pale horse, which is a dead faith. These are the four horsemen of the book of Revelation. A union of church and state. You see, my friends, there's a union of church and state during the Middle Ages. And through several meetings, I've discussed how dangerous that is. And I've given you historical examples with prophetic predictions. The Bible predicted that those unions of church and state would happen. The Bible also predicted that the church would issue decrees that would actually take the place of the teachings of the Bible. During this time, faithful Christians are chained. The Dark Ages, they're marched to the stake and they're burned. Millions were killed in some of the most barbaric methods conceived by man. Some of them you can't... It's like, how did a human being conceptualize some of these techniques. If you'd like to read more about this, there's a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. You can get it free. It's an e-book online. I got it on my phone. But I caution you before you do, this is not a book for the weak of heart. But this will show you the fierceness of the enemy of God. So during this Period. We're going to see steps to compromise. How the church is led downward. Away from the truth of God. The traditions of man take the place of God's word. So man's tradition comes into the church. Then we have penances. Penances take the place of the grace of Jesus. So what's a penance? Penance is an act of self-abasement. Mortification or devotion performed to show sorrow or repentance for sin. People beat themselves, cut themselves. You won't find it in the Bible. 
indulgences come into the church. This is where you pay money so you can get yourself or family members out of purgatory. You know, that place that they say is between hell and heaven? Search your Bible. No such place. It's not biblical. You say, Dan, how could anybody fall for this? Billions. The church developed this idea. You know why? They needed money. It was a fundraising scheme. Next is images. Look around the Roman church, as well as other Christian churches. Images are everywhere. My friends, many compromises come into the church. Church hierarchy substitutes the sun's day for the Sabbath. Man, those that are in power over the church, replace God's Sabbath. They overrule the clear Ten Commandment law. They overrule the clear teaching and ministry of Jesus and the teaching of the apostles. Then human dogmas come into the church. These replace clear teachings of God's word. Man invents practices and traditions, and they bring them into the church, and it replaces the clear teachings of God's word. For centuries, God's truth is cast down to the ground, as we saw in Daniel chapter 8. This is a good question. Would God's truth be trodden down forever? It keeps getting worse and worse, as I'm showing you, right? Would the light of God's truth ever shine again? Would God's word ever be the foundation for the church again? Listen to this. Turn to Jude. Page 1173, right before the book of Revelation. Jude 3. Remember that little book with no chapters? We've been in there a couple times. Jude 3, beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Here the Bible writer says God will raise up men and women to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. Going to raise up a people that will continue to fight for God, continue to contend for God. The Bible tells us that the light would shine again. God would raise up courageous men and women who will be faithful to his word. My friends, God has always and will always have a group of faithful people. Amen? One of these groups, the Waldensians. Anybody heard of the Waldensians? Amen. You see, these were Bible-believing Christians who lived in northern Italy and in southern France. The popular church despised these godly believers. They were brutally persecuted. They were hunted and killed upon sight. So they fled into the mountains of the Alps. This is a hidden Waldensian mountain village. In fact, some of the remnants of these villages are still present today. You can visit them. This is where men and women stood faithful to God's word, and they lived many years ago. They said, our mind is held captive to the word of God. Here's a picture of a secret Bible school where the Waldensian young people studied God's word. They made copies of it 
sewed it into their clothes. They were sent out into other countries and cities of Europe. They were sent out as students, as peddlers. And whenever they found an opportunity, they would leave portions of the scriptures for receptive people. And if they were caught, they'd be killed for it. So the Waldensians, they restored the truth of the Bible and the Bible only. They restored the truth that God's word and God's word alone must be obeyed. As I said, and as Jude told us, God began to rise up, to raise up a variety of men and women. John Huss. John Huss was in Prague, Czechoslovakia. He was a Catholic priest. He began to study the Bible. And once he studied the Bible, he said, obedience to God is my model, not obedience to man. So I'm not going to follow man's dogmas, man's traditions. You see, Huss discovered the truth in the Bible. And he realized that his church was not following it. So Huss took a stand for God. He chose God's way over the way of man. And as a result, Huss was burned at the stake. Huss was a courageous hero who dedicated his life to obeying God. My friends, today I believe with the Waldensians that the Bible and the Bible only is our guide to truth. Amen? Not the traditions of the church. I also believe with John Huss that obedience to God is our only motto. What do you say? God raises up another Catholic priest. Martin Luther, a man of faith. As Martin Luther struggles with this issue of faith, he goes and visits Rome. He senses guilt. It's crushing out his life. And in an attempt to find peace, he does all these penances, climbing the famed Pilate staircase on his knees. He thought, if I can only climb the stairs that Jesus climbed, when he approached Pilate, surely I'll find peace. When Luther returned home, he still felt the oppression of guilt. All of his pilgrimages, all of his penances, none of them had taken away his feeling of unworthiness. Then he was reading the Bible. Turn to Romans chapter 1, page 1085. Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Romans chapter 1, verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Luther discovered these words. Turn to Habakkuk. Chapter 2, verse 4. Habakkuk. Page 910. Page 910. Chapter 2, verse 4. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. My friends, this is where Paul lifted this very quote when he was writing to the Romans. My friends, this wasn't new light. It was rediscovered light. Amen? This is in the Old Testament. Rediscovered light. 
Acts chapter 4. Page 1054. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Martin Luther saw Jesus anew. He saw him as a mighty savior. Luther was amazed. He experienced peace in his life. Luther discovered this light when he studied his Bible. He discovered in the word of God that the church had replaced God's teachings with confusion, with compromise, with falsehood. Luther never set out to enter into a dispute with his church, the Roman Catholic Church. That was not his goal. In fact, his goal was opposite. He loved his church. And he thought they would love him because he had found this new light. He thought, I'm going to rescue my church. We're going to get back on course. Was he wrong? Absolutely. Luther never set out to launch a reformation. But that's exactly what his Bible study did. Let's go back in time for a moment. October, 1517. Anyone know which day? October 31st. Amen. A young priest named Martin Luther had become disappointed with his church. What he had believed were abuses and false teachings in his church. And in protest, he nails a list of 95 points where he believed his church was in error. He nails these to the door of a castle, church, in the town of Wittenberg, Germany. As I said, he had no desire to leave his church. His motivation was to bring the church back to the Bible, back to the truth. But as he continued to study, as he continued to reflect on the behavior of his church, he became convinced that the nation spoken of in Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 13 was Vatican City, was the Roman Catholic papacy. In fact, Luther wrote, we here are of the conviction that the papacy is the seat of the true and real Antichrist. Personally, I declare that I owe the Pope no other obedience than that to the Antichrist. He continues, already I feel greater liberty in my heart. For at last I know that the Pope is Antichrist and that his throne is that of Satan himself. Yeah, that endeared him to his church, didn't it? Luther was expressing the relief. He was expressing relief that now he had found the truth and also he had identified who the real enemy really was. And now he had a sense of urgency. What was his urgency? To share it with everybody else. That was his urgency. My friends, I believe with Martin Luther that salvation comes not by the works of our hands, not the words of men, not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. I believe salvation only comes by grace, by the gift of God. Just as promised Jesus, would, his light would penetrate the darkness. Just as it took 500 years for the church to go from the white horse of pure apostolic faith to the pale horse of spiritual darkness, it takes time for God's faithful followers to grab a hold of, to grasp those glimpses of truth, 
lost sight of down through the ages. You can't just magically pour it on people after they've lost it for centuries. God knew he couldn't do that. People wouldn't be able to absorb it. God would not switch on a light and have truth come down on us all at once. He knew that wasn't going to work. So God gradually begins restoring the truth. In the 1300s and the 1400s, with the Waldensian people, with John Huss, with Martin Luther, each bringing a little more understanding of the Bible to the people of God. Do you know why there are so many denominations? Because the Waldensians stopped where they were. They said the Bible and the Bible only is truth. But then they didn't keep studying the doctrines of the Bible. The Hussites said obedience to God. But then they didn't keep going. The Lutherans said salvation by faith. Martin Luther has it all. But they didn't keep going. My friends, Martin Luther had no desire to have a church named after him. God raised up these good and great men who had partial light, but not one of them had complete truth. Then God raised up another man, John Calvin in Geneva, Switzerland. Calvin emphasized the importance of Christian discipline and growth in grace. Calvin also identified the Antichrist power. Quote, Some persons think us too severe and censorious when we call the Roman pontiff Antichrist. He says, some people are saying, oh, you're a little hard on your words there. Can you cut your rhetoric down a little bit? Does that sound familiar? But those of us who are of this opinion do not consider that they bring the same charge of presumption against Paul himself, after whom we speak and whose language we adopt. Calvin continues, I shall show briefly that Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 are not capable of any other interpretation than that which applies them to the papacy. You can find this in Calvin's writings called Institutes. Google it. Calvin's followers became known as Presbyterians. Once again, a church is built around the teachings of a man God raised up. What each group failed to recognize was that God was using different church leaders to restore varying aspects of truth. Incremental. God was building something. You got to start a foundation and then brick by brick. A man named John Robinson understood this principle. He was the pastor to the Puritan pilgrims who sailed on the Mayflower to the New World. Unable to make the journey himself, he admonished them before the journey. He said, if God should reveal anything to you by any other instrument of his, be as ready to receive it as ever you were to receive any truth of my ministry. For I am very confident the Lord hath more truth and light yet to break forth out of his holy word. Robinson says, you're going to learn much more. God's going to reveal way more than I can teach you. Open your hearts to the Holy Spirit, what Robinson was saying. God was leading this church over a period of centuries until further truth would be restored by a final body of believers at the end of time. This movement would build upon the shoulders of the reformers. But it would go beyond the reformers. It would restore the entire truth that had been lost sight of by a compromised church. 
You say, oh, wait a minute, Dan. Martin Luther, man, he knew a lot of stuff. He did. Praise the Lord. Did you know that Martin Luther still believed in sprinkling babies for baptism? Infant baptism. Contrary to the Bible. Not in the Bible. That was part of Luther's creed. It's not in the Bible. It took the Baptist or the Anabaptist movement to go back to the Bible, discover Bible baptism, to understand Christ's words about baptism. In fact, right in Christ's great commission, turn there, Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. Verse 19, 20, page 967. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And this is the part that people love to leave out. (laughs) Go forth and baptize. Quick, sprinkle them, hose them down, throw the rose petals on them. They throw this out. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I underline teaching for a reason. Jesus said, go and teach men and women. What is that suggesting? We need to be able to understand, comprehend, absorb, and adopt. Can babies do that? No, not these truths. Once they accept the teachings, Jesus says, baptize them. God raises up another man, John Wesley. Wesley sees that the standards of the church are decaying. He saw that the amusements, the pleasures, and the practices of the world are coming into the church. Wesley said, speaking on the papacy, are you seeing a theme here? He is in in, in an emphatical sense, the man of sin as he increases all manner of sin above measure. And he is too properly styled the son of perdition, as he has caused the death of numberless multitudes, both of his opposers and followers. He it is that exalted himself above all that is God and that is worshipped, claiming the highest power and highest honor, claiming the prerogatives which belong to God alone. That's from Wesley's writings called Antichrist and His Ten Kingdoms. Page 110. So God raises up John Wesley and shows him that when men and women study the Bible, that they were to live holy and righteous lives. So Wesley teaches people that God's people must live holy lives. God's people must reflect God's character on earth as a witness for others to see. Which means God's people should stand out in the world. My friends, do you believe in holiness? Amen. I believe in holiness. I believe the church should be separate from the world. I believe that if you are a Christian, you should look like a Christian. You should eat like a Christian. You should talk like a Christian. And you should go places that Christians go. Claiming to be a Christian... But drinking alcohol, indulging in worldly entertainment and dress is not Christianity. It's self-deception. 
This is why the Apostle Paul called us ambassadors for Christ. How we walk, how we talk, how we look reflects on Christ and on Christianity. If we're going to claim to be Christians, we need to act like him. My friends, there was another long lost sight of truth that needed to be restored. It was the truth of the second coming of Christ. Much tradition and falsehood had entered into the church regarding one event that we should all be looking for. God raises up a powerful preacher named William Miller to proclaim the truth of the second coming of our Lord. You see, at this time, the church had neglected the truth of our Lord's return. God raises up a movement. It was called Adventism. Adventists are called Adventists because they believed in Christ's coming. And the Advent was soon. They believed in his soon coming. A huge movement sweeps Christianity and they rediscover and they embrace the light of Bible prophecy. My friends, do you believe Jesus is coming soon? Amen. I believe that too, so I'm an Adventist. But there was one important biblical truth that wasn't yet restored. The truth that faith leads to obedience. Faith leads to the obedience of the commandments of God and the special truth that the Sabbath was a symbol of Christ's creative authority. You see, Christ would raise up a last day movement that would finally restore the truth about God's Ten Commandment law in the middle of a time of commandment breaking. In a time when a vast majority of the world had spurned God's law. God would once again shine light on his law. He would shine the light on his law's importance. And this last day movement would take seriously God's instructions through Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself told us how important this was in John chapter 14, verse 15. You've seen it in almost every presentation. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Jesus himself tells us how important this is. My friends, Jesus would have a last day movement and it would be outlined in the book of Revelation. Bible prophecy, as it had been for centuries, would once again be fulfilled because God always keeps his word. Amen? We've seen it through our studies. Every time he's predicted something, it happens. In fact, God would call all of humanity back. Turn to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, verse 7, page 1184. Revelation chapter 14, verse 7. Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of water. God would call back people to worship him as the creator. God would call back people to the truths of the Bible. God would call back people to accept the Sabbath as a symbol of his creative power. My friends, in an age of evolution, God would restore the truth about creation. He would restore the truth of the Sabbath and its connection to creation. God would have a group of people that restored the truths that had been lost sight of during the Dark Ages. 
Bible's last book, the book of Revelation, identifies this people. What do these people look like? Revelation 14, verse 12. Here is the patient of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. That describes those people, the end time people. God would have a group of people that had total faith in Jesus and would accept the whole Bible as his word, as the only arbiter of truth in these last days. He would have a people that would keep his commandments because they love him. An outpouring of love because they are faithfully worshiping the creator each and every Sabbath. These Christians would grow into the faith that Jesus had while he walked this earth. God would have a called out people. His people would be called out of the world. They would be called out of the traditions of men. Called out of the confusion. Called out of the deception. Called out of compromise. Men and women from every nation, from every race. Men and women from every language group are called out people. This people would be called into God's light. Called into his word, into his promise, into his grace. My friends, I'm a Waldensian because I believe in the Bible and the Bible only. I'm a Hussite. Because I believe we must obey God rather than man. I'm a Lutheran. Because I believe in salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. I'm a Presbyterian. Because I believe in the organization of the church as taught by the Bible. I'm a Baptist because I believe in baptism by immersion. I'm a Methodist because I believe God has called us to holiness. I also believe like the original Methodists in the methodical study of the Bible. And friends, I'm an Adventist because I believe in the second coming of Christ. And I'm a Seventh-day Adventist because I believe in the Bible Sabbath of the seventh day. I believe God has a movement. He describes it in the book of Revelation to which he is calling men and women. My friends, today God is doing something unusual. He is gathering people. He is gathering his last day movement around the whole world. Hundreds and thousands of people sense that this is God's time to restore all the truths that were lost down through the ages. They are accepting God's truth. They are walking into the waters to be baptized. Most importantly, they are following Jesus Christ. You see, they don't want a denomination based on men. That only comes partway out of the air in the traditions of the past. They want to go all the way with Jesus. They want to walk into his truth. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe that God has brought you to these meetings for a purpose. I believe that God had truth walk into your life. And today, I believe God is saying to you, my child, this is your moment in history. 
This is your moment in destiny. This is your time of opportunity. Follow that truth. My friends, I'd like to call to you today to say to Jesus, Lord, thank you. Lord, I want to follow that truth. My friends, today, right now, would you like to open your heart to Jesus? Would you like to say, Lord, I want to follow your truth? Do you want to say, Lord, you have guided me? Lord, I've heard your voice. I want to commit my life to you. Now, friends, time is short. We've studied all the signs. We've studied all the prophecies. Time is short. All of man is picking sides. Will you stand on the side of truth? Or will you stand on the side of compromise and error and destruction? Now, my friends, the Lord is calling you. But he's calling you to come with him all the way. Not part way. You don't get to put one foot in and one foot out. The Lord says, I need you all. You need to submit to me. Not because it's a power trip. It's because it's the only way to salvation. It's the only way to rescue. My friends, some of you have answered a call to baptism previously in these meetings. And I'm going to issue another call right now. If you feel the Lord touching your heart, calling you to be baptized, I want you to stand up. Even if you've answered that call previously, stand up again. Commit to the Lord. Commit to the Lord this day, this moment. We may be taking our last breath. I may not finish this sentence. The Lord is calling each and every one of you. Perhaps you've fallen away from the Lord. Perhaps you've wandered away. You've been baptized before. But you've wandered off the path. Or maybe you've discovered new truth in these meetings. You've discovered things that you didn't know. And now you want to commit to them. You want to accept them. If you want to be rebaptized, my friends, stand up. Answer that call. You're not answering me. I'm just a man. I've told you this through the whole series. Trust the Bible. Check this with the Bible. If you want to be baptized, come forward. Come forward with me. We're going to have a special prayer for these dear souls. My friends, the Lord is calling you. The Lord is calling all of us. I'll ask everybody to stand with me as we close with a word of prayer, a special prayer for these gentlemen right now. Come right up here. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much for this glorious day. And Lord, we thank you for the blessings that you've bestowed upon us. Most of all, we thank you for the sacrifice of your blood, of your forgiveness of our sins, the casting away of our death sentence. And Lord, these dear souls, these, these dear souls of yours today have asked for baptism. They've asked to commit their lives to you, Lord, and I just ask for a special prayer upon them. I ask you to wrap your loving arms around them, draw them nearer to you as the enemy will surely attack them. But in your power, they will be victorious, Lord. And Lord, there may be others in this group today that are wrestling, that are thinking, that are considering baptism. And I just ask you to continue to speak to them, continue to call to them. Lord, bring them into your love, bring them into your gathering. Speak to them, contend 
Fight the enemy off. Most of all, Lord, continue to woo them. Lord, we ask you now to please be with us all. Keep us safe. Continue to bless these meetings. As we go out into the world, Lord, I just ask you to continue to help us to be a light unto others and draw us into your love. Lord, we ask this all in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. God bless, brother.